Our Old Testament reading is from Exodus chapter 14, verses 5 through 14. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Piahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Sermon text this morning comes from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 4, verses 1 through 21. Now, when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is so much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time the Jews who lived near them came from the directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. 
So in the lowest part to the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears and shields, bows and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of his builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there and our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work and half them held the spears from the break of dawn till the stars came out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that it is. Thank you for the ways that you reveal ourselves, but also reveal yourself. That we can see you as the great and awesome God who loves and protects his people. So Father, I pray that your spirit would fall on us in power this morning. You would open our ears and our hearts and our minds to what you have to say, because you alone have the words of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we're looking through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah from the Old Testament. And the reason we're doing that is as we prepare to go back to normal life. Now, we all know we don't know what normal life is going to look like. We do know that S-C-H-O-L starts tomorrow. I'm still not saying it for the good of the kids because it's a lot, I know. And I actually was, found myself weirdly at a high school football game on Friday night, and it made things feel really sort of normal, maybe too normal at parts, but we won't go there. The idea was it's just crazy that, yes, at some point, we'll go back to what we thought of as normal life. We're going to go back to that. And what we've looked at this time is looking at the Israelites and how they returned from 70 years of captivity and exile to rebuild lives. That's the theme of these two books. And what we've done over these last few weeks, the first week, we had to be convinced and reminded of God's sovereignty. Because if God is not in control, if God is not in charge of these things, then a pandemic or an exile is just kind of a frustrating thing that happens to all of us, and we just have to endure it. But if God is in control, and God is in charge, and he has orchestrated this by his hand, there is something for us to learn in it. There's something he wants from us in it. And what we continue to say is, we need to rebuild a life, and not everything needs to be rebuilt. So as the Jews entered back in, they realized, what do we need to build these new lives around? Because if our lives look exactly as the same on the back end of the pandemic as it was on the front end, I think we've missed something. So he says, this is what we've looked at. First, that we looked at these lives of worship. We need to rebuild lives of worship. It's our calling. It's what we were created to for to glorify God. So how important that is for us. And then last week, we looked at this idea of rebuilding a life of compassion, In a season like this, it is so easy for us to get inward focused and poor pitiful me and how hard and difficult and all those things are real. We're dealing with hard, difficult things. But if we look in, we forget the opportunities that God has without. That there are so many opportunities for us to love and serve and care for people who are open to hear about Jesus in a new way because they've been laid low by all that's happened to them. 
And if we don't have that heart of compassion, if we're like Nehemiah, who are trying to be informed of what's happening, move to compassion for it, deeply loving people, sad for their hurts, and then being willing to go. And if we remember that Nehemiah prayed for four months before he had the opportunity to go before the king and he says, send me. And that's where we find the context of our story. That Nehemiah is now back. He's back, he's gone and done a loop around the wall. He sees all the issues and all the problems of what's going on. Now for the kids, before we get started, here are your three questions to remember as always. For those of you guys here, for those of you guys who are at home, um, a great opportunity for you guys to have a conversation around the lunch table. Three questions. What did those who lived around Jerusalem do to God's people? How did God's people respond to that? And how did God's people prepare to fight? Those are the three questions I want you to be thinking about. Now, as we jump into this passage for today, I think the first thing that strikes us or should strike us is this idea of opposition. There is great opposition that God's people encounter from the very beginning. There's words like very angry. They were furious. The people who lived around Jerusalem did not want the wall rebuilt. They did not want a strong Jerusalem. They did not want these people who have at times had these amazing stories about their God and about their kings. They did not want them returned to power. So they were angry when they watched the wall start. And so they began to oppose them. And why I think that matters for you and me today is because we live in a very unique time in American history. Depending upon what, you know, polls that you looked at, in the last five years, Christianity is now less than 50% of the American population. There are more people who say they are not Christians than Christians for the first time in American history. And then we feel that and see that. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have probably felt that opposition at times in the last few years. Because especially if you're in your teens or 20s or 30s, I am so sorry how much harder Christianity is going to be for you because you hear these words all the time. You identify as a Christian. Oh, you're backwards. You're a bigot. You're intolerant. You're hateful. You're frustrated. You don't love people well. You don't listen to people well. You are set in your ways. That is the argument that we hear all the time now, pushing against those who long to follow Jesus. And we find ourselves opposed in a deep way, in a way we never have before. People at the very least tolerated Christianity, now people rail against it. And if you have not yet met opposition as a follower of Jesus in your life, get ready, because it's coming. God even told us, Jesus, what did he say? In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. We should expect it, but we need to know how to stand up under it, especially in our culture. We live in this Western culture, this American culture, this very individualistic culture. And other cultures, they don't do what we do. We think it's all about us. My personal relationship with Jesus, my experience with him, me out in the mountains by myself, that's all I really need. I don't need other people. You look in the other countries of the world, it is all about community. It is all about us. It is all about we. And as we look at this passage, we're gonna see that in 21 verses, the word we or us is used 13 times. This is not Nehemiah on his crusade by himself. It is God's people joined together. And we're gonna see how they stand up to opposition is together. 
But let's look at some of the opposition they faced. First off, these are the beautiful things about the Bible that sometimes we miss if we don't understand the context. You'll notice in verse seven, they give us a whole different groups and places. And what it tells us, if we know the geography of what's happening, is God's people were completely surrounded by opposition. Sanballat and Samaria were to the north. The Arabs were to the south. The Ashdodites were to the west. And the Ammonites were to the east. And these are people who didn't typically get along. These are people who would also fight with each other. They found a common cause and a common enemy in God's people. So literally, Jerusalem is surrounded on all sides by people who were opposing them. And what they start with is they start by taunting them. You notice it's like, this is psychological warfare 101. It starts with taunts. And what they say is, what do these feeble Jews think that they're doing? They're so weak, they can't do anything. Do they really think they could build this by themselves? There's no way. This whole thing of will they sacrifice, what they're really saying is, do they think they're just gonna be able to pray the wall up? They think they're gonna believe in their God and their sacrifices will make it happen? Do they think they'll finish it in a day? Are they so dumb that they're using old rocks that have been burned by the fire that aren't stable? This thing is so bad, even if a fox runs on it, it's all gonna fall down. Do you see the taunting over and over again, pummeling them with words? And the sad thing probably for you and for me is how easy it is to believe the lies of the world when it comes to our own lives. How easy it is to believe those worst things that people think or say because in our heart of hearts, we believe some of those same things. They were so discouraged, so upset about what was being said about them over and over again. To the point is, what does it say? The people in Judah finally start to believe the lies. There's too much rubble. We can't do this by ourselves anymore. I know if you're anything like me that you find yourself getting pummeled by the opinions of others and you find yourself pummeled by an enemy who knows that discouragement is one of his most powerful weapons against you that you'll just disqualify yourself if he can get you to believe the lies the world thinks. Over and over, they were just pummeled with this. But then when that didn't work and they continued to work, there's physical violence. They didn't come up with another plan. What we're gonna do is this. We're gonna sneak up on them while they're working and not paying attention and we're gonna kill them. That'll stop the work. This was how much they were opposed. It wasn't just psychological warfare. It would have been physical warfare. They were coming to take lives. But the worst part is it wasn't just outside, it was also within. Again, some of the group starts to believe it's too hard and too much, but then their families, it said the Jews that are surrounding them in Judah who were also scared about all these enemies start to say, hey, come, come back, come to us, return to us. It says 10 times, but that really means is over and over and over and over again. It's too dangerous for us and for you. You don't really have to build that wall anymore. You don't really have to do that anymore. Just come back home. In the midst of all of that opposition, in the midst of all of that struggle, how do the people respond? They respond in community. And they respond as a community like this. Three things we're gonna look at today. They were a people of prayer. They were a people of not purpose, with the purpose, yes. Okay, people of purpose. 
Sometimes you forget your own points. It's the way it goes sometimes. And they were a people of promise. A people of prayer, people of purpose, people of promise. First prayer. Notice that's where they start. They don't respond in kind to these taunts and threats. They don't go, oh, okay, well, this is, well, we'll get you back. It says, we prayed to our God. Rather than respond to them, they requested from the one who had the most power the one who they knew to go to. For them, prayer was not a last resort. It was a primary weapon. And if we're honest, sometimes isn't that how we see prayer? If I can't do it on my own, if my plan doesn't work, if all these things that I've put in place, in the end, if it doesn't work, well, I guess I'll pray now. I guess, I guess I'm stuck praying with no other options. They prayed first. They recognized and realized the first thing was the most important thing they could do, which was to pray. And that's how they would face opposition. This is something I've had to learn over like many years, but especially over the last three years. It has been such a blessing to stand in the gap during this time. I have been so thankful to the Lord. I have learned so much. It has been so good. I, I mean, it's, I'm so glad for James to be here, but I'm so glad you know, to have had this moment in time because it sanctified the world out of me. You would be surprised and shocked, or maybe you wouldn't be, by the kind of emails that I've received over three years. The, the accusations, the things that people have said, the hurtful things people have said. And I don't do that to feel sorry for me. Don't, don't email me all, oh, you're so great, I love you. Don't, it's fine. Everything was good, I can handle it. But my natural inclination was the first couple of emails like that, I'm like, oh, now we're gonna have fun. Okay, so you're gonna be, I can top that. You, you think you're being like, I can be harsher than you could ever be in a million years. And I realized after a few of those emails, it never really died down. It only escalated and got worse. And it never really accomplished what I hoped to. My hope was, oh, you're right. I'm wrong. I'll be quiet now. That never happened. Amazingly enough, I don't know why. So I learned a very important lesson. I don't respond to a negative email for at least three days. And the question I asked myself before I hit reply is, have I prayed for them? Not have I prayed to the Lord against them, have I prayed for them? Have I truly prayed and cared about their souls? Have I given them the benefit of the doubt? Have I tried to look deeper and say, how can I love them like Jesus loves them? Because I know that he does. Then I can respond. They prayed. They leaned into the trust and reliance they had on God. And that was because of the exile. They had no power. They had no abilities. They couldn't do anything on their own. So when they were faced with something like this, they prayed. I hope that's the outcome of the pandemic for most of us. That we've just been reminded we only had an illusion of control. And that truly, there is one who's in control and he's the one that we pray to. And that we will lean into prayer. And even their prayer, if you kind of read the beginning of that prayer, it seems a little harsh. It seems a little not New Testament. You know, that's not loving your neighbor, right? But what they were doing was not praying for themselves. They were praying for God's glory. They were zealous for his glory, zealous for him to be just over their sin, and the problem is when I pray by myself, I am way more selfish when I pray. When I pray with others, it just helps me to think differently. When they gathered together, they were praying that God would be glorified by their prayers, not that their lives would be easier. 
So my question for you is, who do you pray with? Not who do you pray for? I hope that we all have a prayer list of people we pray for. Who do you pray with? Who are the people you spend time with on a regular basis offering up requests to the Lord about your family, about your job, about the world, about our nation, about this church, about the God's kingdom to come? Because there's an amazing thing that happens when God's people pray together. We have a mission prayer group that meets Friday mornings and they've had for at least 40 years. That's as far back as I can get someone to confirm. At least 40 years every week. And you wonder why we have such a robust and amazing missions program. Peers is awesome. Your giving is great. It's because that group prays every week. Faithfully. Let me give you one other example. A guy named Jeremiah Lanham. Nobody's ever heard of him before. 1857, New York City. He felt convicted by the way that the church was dealing with the immigrants of that day. And so he talks to some of his buddies and says, I'm gonna meet at 12 noon and I'm gonna pray at this church. The first day, it's just him. The next day, there's six people with him, just a group of six praying. Within a few weeks, it's up to 100. Then a few months, it's up to 1,000. In two years, one million Americans came to know Jesus Christ in a two-year period. Most people would say because of this man's prayers and this group's prayers. It's called the Second Great Awakening. You've probably heard of it before. A small group of people just pray. Just pray. So who do you pray with. And if that's something you're interested in, email me this week. If it's not angry, I'll email pretty quickly. If it's more, it'll be more than three days, but just email me. And again, let me help you find a group or start a group because it is so important for us to gather together as God's people to pray. But not only were they a people of prayer, they were people of purpose. They were remembering who they were and what they were supposed to do. They were called to build this wall. They didn't just come to kind of start a new life over or come to relive the glory days. Nehemiah, when he gave them the opportunity to come back, it was to build the wall of Jerusalem. It was to protect the people inside. It was to create a safe haven for God's people to be able to worship him within the temple without fear. They had a very important job to do. So as they prayed, they continued to work. So their hearts were turned to work. Their hearts were made to build. And they continued that process over and over again. But not only did they have this heart to build and fulfill their purpose, they were willing to fight for their purpose. They knew it would be difficult, they knew it'd be hard, and they were ready to fight for it. They were ready to fight for each other and fight for this work that they had. And what I found is Nehemiah comes up with kind of a plan as he's praying, as they're working, he says, here's what we're gonna do. First off, in the lowest places, the places that are most vulnerable, the most visible, I'm gonna put guards. So then when they wanna come and attack, they're gonna see, okay, they're at least ready for me. That comes out of answer to prayer. As they prayed about what's going on, what does it tell us a little bit later? The Lord had frustrated their plan and it was made known to the Jews that they were gonna try to come in one of these ways and attack and kill them. That's how God answered the prayers and they act on that answer. But not only that, Nehemiah puts them with their families. He puts them with clans because that's all the motivation you'll ever need. If you're standing side by side with your brother or your sister or your wife or your husband or your kids or your parents or your grandparents, you're gonna fight totally differently. 
because you see around you what you have to lose. So wisely, they gathered them together. It wasn't just my 15 best warriors. It was, I'm gonna put you there with your whole family and your whole support system so you'll be ready to fight. And he came up with these great ideas. Here, we're gonna do something totally different. If you're carrying a load, you're gonna carry it with one hand and have your sword in the other, just in case. If you're working on the wall, one will work, the other's gonna hold a shield or a spear or a bow or a sword or chain mail. You're gonna protect each other while you continue to do what God's called you to do. We have a purpose that we're gonna build. And there's this beautiful thing that Charles Spurgeon took this idea and he made a newsletter on it. It was called the trowel, the sword and the trowel, which is another word for shovel. It's the idea that we as Christians should always be battlers and builders all the time. We should always be battling our own sin and also building God's kingdom at the same time. But even more than that, Nehemiah had this moment. He realized we're spread out far. The work is much. But when the attack comes, when things get hard, I'm gonna blow the trumpet. The trumpet will be with me. I'll go to where the battle is. And when you hear the trumpet, gather there. Spread out far, doing different things. When you hear the trumpet, come to that place. In some ways, that's what this is every week. It's a place where we come and gather and we remember and we pray and we worship and then we get ready to go back out and fight the fight that God's given us. But also think about the beauty of that picture. When the attack comes, the trumpet blows and everyone gathers. Ready to fight, ready to die. So my question for you is this, who's fighting with you? Who's fighting for you? And sometimes fighting with you means who's ready to tell you the hard thing? Because at times when we pray by ourselves or when we labor by ourselves, we get this in our heads of this is the one way to do things or this is the one thought. We need other people to sharpen our thoughts, don't we? Who are the people who do that in your life? Better said, If you sounded the trumpet today, if you were in distress or struggling or needed help and you sounded the trumpet, who'd come? Who would show up in your life? Or maybe even this. If you decided tomorrow to walk away from Christianity, to walk away from the faith, to walk away from the church, who'd come after you? Who wouldn't let you leave? Because if we don't have those kind of people in our lives, we are missing out. We were made to be in community. From the very beginning, God said it was not good that the man was alone. From the beginning, we were made to be with others. And especially if we're gonna fulfill our purpose, we need people who will stand beside us and fight. Help us fight our own sin. Help us fight our own struggle. And last, a people of promise. Think about it. They've been taunted, waylaid, all these lies thrown at them over and over and over. And they basically believe, I just can't do it. I don't know how many of you walked in this morning with that thought playing in your head. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough for God. I'm not good enough to go to church. I'm not good enough to be used. I'm not even worthy to pray. 
I know my own issues. I know my own sin. I know the guilt that I deal with. I know the shame that I deal with. Can you imagine that they felt some of those same things? I can't believe I came here to do this one work and I can't even do it because I'm so scared or I'm so nervous. I'm just not good enough. There's a hope that comes from this that Nehemiah gives them. He says, our God will fight for us. You can come and gather when the trumpet blows, we'll be together. Guess what? That's awesome. But guess what? He'll fight for us. Exodus 14, he was the one who would win the battle. They were not gonna win because they were so numerous, because they weren't. They weren't gonna win because they were so strong. What does it tell us over and over again? They were worn out and tired by the work. They weren't gonna win because they had the best weapons. They weren't gonna win because they were the most cohesive fighting force or had great experience. They've been in exile for 70 years. Most of them have probably never even used the sword and never been in a fight or battle at all. God goes, exactly. Because if you had any of those things, you think you did it. And I'm the one who's gonna win the battle. For you and I, it's a good reminder It's not about how good we think we are. It's not about how much Bible we read or church we go to or money we give. It's not about this huge list of things that we think earns us favor with God. You know who won the battle? His name is Jesus. And he died on the cross for your sin, a sin which was an enemy you could never defeat. He comes and he says these beautiful words, it is finished. Your sin, your striving, it's finished. I've won the battle for you. Our God will fight for us. Why? Because we're his. We win the battle because we belong to him. So all those lies out there that we're not good enough, the cross shows us, yes, you are. Because I love you enough to die for you. To die for you to hold on to that promise. A good, awesome, fearsome God is who they served. And the constant reminder of that, one who is way more powerful than even your greatest enemy, which is your sin. Who in your life reminds you of the gospel daily? Because I don't know about you, it is so easy to forget it is so easy to get caught up in you know, what I have to do to earn this from God when the truth is there's nothing I can do. Even my best attempts are but filthy rags. What are, Paul said, all these things that I thought were gain and now consider lost, they're rubbish compared to knowing Christ and his forgiveness. Your battle's already been won. Whatever battle you brought in here, whatever guilt, whatever shame, whatever issues, whatever problems, it has been won. And in Exodus 14, he said, you just gotta be quiet. Just gotta trust. Just gotta hope in the one who can do all things. Who is telling you the gospel on a daily basis? Who are you with who reminds you who you are and who God is? I can say with great joy that in the darkest and hardest moments of my life, I've had people do this for me. They've prayed for me, prayed with me, They've just sat silently and quietly and they've wept with me and they've rejoiced with me. I've had people who reminded me of my purpose when I wasn't sure what my purpose was, reminded me who I was, that I was a child of God used by him for his glory and his honor. 
And I've had people who remind me that I'm not as great as I think I am, but I'm not as bad as I think I am even. That's the kind of community you and I are made to have. And as we get back into this normal life, I just want to encourage you to find people who will do this in your life. Not just someone who will go to the bar with you, or not just someone who will go to the game with you, or not just someone who will play tennis with you, or not just someone who will go shopping with you, or not just someone who will watch movies with you, or all those things matter and all those things are important. It's good to be in relationships and community. But do you have people who pray with you? Do you have people ready to go to battle beside you? Do you have people who will answer the call when you need them most? And do you have people ready to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ deep into the hardest hurts of your life? That's what it'll take to stand up against opposition and discouragement that we deal with on a daily basis. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the encouragement that it gives us. Help us to truly be a people of community. Thank you for the picture that we see with the Jews of this day, Father, the way that they bound together. Thank you for the opportunities over and over again. They saw it all as we. It was never individuals. That they prayed together. That they labored together. They were ready to fight and die together. And they were remembered that they were yours. That our God will fight for us. Help us, whatever we have, whatever we're dealing with this morning, to walk away with that truth that we have one who knows us best and yet still loves us most and is willing to die for our sins. I thank you for the promise and the reminder of that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.